Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and this is a private view. Kenny Schachter is in London from New York, and I'm more than thrilled to have him on a private view for a remote record. Uh, he went to great lengths traveling to try and connect with us. And I had one, one sort of order from Kenny before he came on the show or agreed to come on the show, and that was to make the questions hard. So I took a survey over the weekend to a couple of private view guests from the past, and I asked Matt Carey Williams to ask Kenny a hard question. And Matt Carey Williams, being Matt Carey Williams, asked what makes Kenny hard. <laughs> what makes me hard? Is that the question? That is what Matt Carey Williams asked you. <laughs> all right. I mean, you, you described all these disparate things that I do, and I've been doing it for 30 years. I'm very old on top of everything else. But what makes me hard, besides a few other things, which I won't get into right now, primarily it's art. And that drives really – so people say that I do so many different things, and I'm all over the place, and I'm a dilettante, and I'm spread too thin, and you can't – literally um, – my wife asked uh, Matthias Rostoffer, who was previously on the uh, Basel Selection Committee, why they would never let me in when I was doing more um, projects like gallery projects. And he said, because I do too many things. And even uh, Matthew Slotover from Free said, it's just too unpredictable, my behavior. And in a sense, really, I think that's, the, that's the, the good part of what I do, that I do so many different things. But for me, it's all under one umbrella, which is art. And I'm crazy, passionate, and horny for everything art. It just makes the continues to make the hair stand up on my arms. And with everything that we're going through now, between this pandemic that's killed in America over 100,000 people and the violence of these uh, protests, over this outrageous, shocking racial injustice in the United States and across the world. Um, really, when you look at something like social media and you see the way artists and people involved in art respond to these things in such a visceral, sympathetic and intelligent, meaningful way, it's the only hope. Art for me is hope, religion, sex, everything rolled into one. And you look at this revolting, shocking behavior, a policeman in a uniform paid to protect the citizens of whatever jurisdiction they reside in, just sitting there on a man's neck for nine minutes and just sucks the life right out of a, a human being. It's so disturbing. But like, if only artists were running the world and in political seats of power, we'd be in a lot of different position right now. I, feel. I couldn't agree more. I think David Lynch wrote a book about that too, that the world would be in a lot better place if artists were running the world or if they were at least involved in the decision-making. How Who is that? David Lynch wrote a book called Catching the Bigger Fish saying that. I see. And now he's painting too. Everybody wants to be an artist. <laughs> well, who can blame them? I don't blame him. Uh, Jake Chapman has a question for you as well. Oh, oh no, no. Yeah, Jake <laughs> Chapman is, is there's similarities between you and Jake Chapman. Well, that's a compliment. I'll take that as a compliment. It is I a think. compliment. It is a compliment. No, he's and, a genius, first and foremost, a brilliant guy. Oh, you're going to make me. 
Actually, that makes me because he's also really nice. Well, let's not. I don't know about nice. He's certainly brilliant, and his writing alone is is awe inspiring. He he said, Kenny, do you know the difference between the beautiful and the sublime? <laughs> um, is there a difference? I think for me, beautiful is sublime because for me, beautiful isn't a flower. Beautiful could be a weeping wound. Uh, when I think of the work of an artist like Paul Tech, who depicted this like slice of raw, exposed, vulnerable meat with like pustules coming out of it. I mean, to me, that's beautiful and sublime. So I think that really anything moving, touching, and meaningful encompasses everything, whether it's sublime, beautiful, cerebral, conceptual. So I think one person's beautiful could be, I mean, this is especially in the sensibility of Mr. Chapman, like one person's beautiful could be another's vomit. So... Beautiful is just too generic a term because for me, a lot of things that I'm wildly attracted to from Vito Acconci masturbating under a fake floor in a gallery in 1972 to the works of Paul Tech and many other wonderful great artists. And like when you think of Eva Hesse, more contemporary artists like um, Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin and Rachel Harrison, there's beauty in things that some lay people would not find attractive, but I find stunning and Deeply beautiful. Well, it's interesting what you're saying because I think uh, we're talking about it being summertime and summertime being a time when people fall in love, especially they're lifting the sanctions of it. And it is true. People are attracted to different things. Some people are attracted to pain. Some people are attracted to perfection. Some people are attracted to uh, fun. And, and the art world provides something for everyone so I, I i get what you're you're saying in a sense you know what you're attracted to um when i had you on last time we were talking about the art world before the book boom came out a book which you're featured in quite heavily i think they call you the samuel peeps they talk about you um michael schneerson talks about you sort of I don't know if the words, well, buying everything of Joe Bradley's when doors were shut in his face. Uh, so there's this great minute or two or three uh, on audio, and in the book it goes for pages, of Joe Bradley dressed as Charlotte the Lamb uh, and you being at the performance and buying all his work. Well, like I said, I'm the worst dealer that ever tried to sell a painting. <laughs> And couldn't, I can't sell drugs to a drug addict. And I, the only reason I ever get involved with any art, whether it's to curate it and present it in exhibitions like curating or um, collecting it, trying to sell it to other people, which is the way that I try to sustain myself so I can continue to write and make art. Uh, it's because I care about it and I want to and typically own it myself. I would never just try to flog some piece of art for the sake of making a quick dollar or something unless I cared about it. So with Joe's work, I only ever exhibited it, not because I saw some great commercial beast about to be unleashed, but because I liked the work, plain and simple. It was, And again, like back to the sublime and the beautiful, his work was so unprofessional and so badly painted that it just drew me in like a magnet. And as a result, when I couldn't sell a damn thing for $500, it was, I bought half of them and probably stole the rest. 
between me and you, of course. Of course, yeah. Why would it be any other way? That's quite. But however, I get a sense that Joe Bradley would be okay with that, since he caused apparently, or according to the book, he, he caused trouble with his dealers because he would always give a portion of it to Canada Gallery because they helped him in the early days. So. If I get a sense of him as an artist, he's probably quite similar to you in the way he thinks about things. Yeah, I mean, I think he has that kind of anarchistic sensibility within. Okay, here's some hard questions. What are billionaires going to do now that art fairs won't be a place where they can meet their friends? I mean, to be honest, I don't give a fuck about billionaires and what they're going to do. They're going to be just fine. What the pressing question is, what is everybody else going to do? Because, I mean... I've had everybody has had a very difficult time. If you're not a billionaire and profiting off of the misfortune of the world or 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 making money in pharmaceuticals or um, Amazon and Zoom, what are the people going to do that restaurant people and, and, and people that are associated with traveling and artists and dealers? What is everybody going to do to make a living in the most uncertain economic time? probably since the last great plague. So, I mean, the most pressing and difficult question is how are people going to survive and make a living when there's 30 or 40 million unemployed people in the world? And I always used to kind of balk at the small to mid-level gallery crisis, which I never really believed existed because it's always been a struggle for small to medium-level galleries to make a living. That's the nature of the beast and the business model that anytime artists start to excel at the small and mid-gallery level, they jump ship and use those galleries as a stepping stone to go to bigger galleries. So that you have there's nothing to care about Gagosian, Hauser and Worth, and David's Werner, but to worry about are the small galleries like Magenta Plains and and other similarly like uh, Emmeline Gallery here in London and Herald Street and the smaller galleries that are really scrappy and, and struggling from in good times, how are they going to get by and what are we going to do to support them and to support ourselves? I mean, I have sold a few of my small inexpensive pieces over the last three months and only just a matter of days ago, I was able to sell a piece from my collection and that'll help to pay the rent that is overdue right now for myself. So I mean, I'm not really worried about those people or art fairs because whether it's technology, technologically uh, assisted means of delivery for auctions and fairs, these things will carry on. And sooner or later, there's going to be a vaccine for this um, corona sickness and people will restart and begin to see art in the traditional ways that we've seen it before Plus, again, like this has really accelerated our assimilation with technology. So that will become a bigger factor in the dissemination of art. Just the fact that I managed to download this software and get our conversation going goes a long shot. I mean, I taught my first class at School of Visual Arts since moving to New York. And literally on the evening before I was supposed to start teaching, I was told there would be no classes. And I, I came within a hair of quitting just because I was scared about having to conduct a six hour class, a studio class with seniors every single week uh, on Zoom. And rather than stop or not do it, which I came so very close to doing, I did it. 
And as a result, I just became, it became probably one of the best experiences I've ever had in 30 years in the art business by working with students, adapting to the situation and talking about art for six hours in one go a week. And I always say when you're in the art business, you never get to speak about art because nobody cares about art. They just want to know who's buying it, selling it and showing it, et cetera. Well, that's not true with you. And you call yourself a, a dilettante, but I think it's more of a Swiss army knife. I think you're ready for any occasion, and that's a little one of the miniature ones, one of the little teeny tiny ones. That's a keychain, also. All right, so here's the name game. We're going to talk a little bit about people, and you're going to give me your impression. What uh, happened? What happened to Andrea Rosen? You know, she got tired. I'm guessing. I mean, again, like I think that she always she was a great art dealer. I've known her since the beginning of my career. Yeah, I've I always agree. liked her. I have nothing bad to say about her. <laughs> like, I like her too. Like many, however, um, I think that she financially was in a good position. Whether it was through, it was a mixture of probably her family and her long hard work. I think she also owned real estate uh, in terms of like being smart enough when her gallery relocated to own the space. And I think she had enough money, and she just didn't feel like playing the game anymore. What about the rumors about Mike Kelly and Larry Gagosian? What room? I haven't heard the rumors, but I would say that Mike Kelly is one of my favorite artists and a fabulous, brilliant person. He wrote about Paul Tech. His writing was incredible. He worked in so many. What I love about him is he was restless and never settled. You, I mean, you could see a show of his work and it could look like a group show to anybody because of the kind of way he flitted from one medium to another. But, well, let's backtrack for one second. What's the rumor about Mike Kelly and Gagosian? That when he switched to Gagosian, the pressure was too much for him. And they didn't do what, they didn't do what he thought they'd do, and he left a gallery that he'd been with for a long time that took care of him and nurtured him because he was a special kind of personality. And he didn't get that from Larry. I also think like at the time that Mike Kelly went to Gagosian, Gagosian was a different animal. He was a much better place for um, for primary market artists to have a platform because of the scale of his spaces. It wasn't now, it's just a kind of secondary market behemoth where it's just like a machine for money. And if, if I was a young artist, that's the last place I would want to show my work because I just don't think the imprimatur of showing with him has the same effect as it did when Mike Kelly was showing there. But my theory of Mike Kelly, which is my own stupid theory, so take it for what it's worth, but Mike Kelly was an artist that courted failure and the kind of whole suburban experience and like a miserable childhood was really part and parcel of his entire body of work and his life. He had a, a band of misfits his art was depicting this kind of um, existential misery in early adulthood and throughout life and childhood with his stuffed animal sculptures. And then all of a sudden, he became probably more successful than he ever imagined he could be. And in the end, he ended up like feeding this, you know, art fair machine of Gagosian. And he ended up with a studio packed with 40 employees and assistants. And I think that may have contributed or exacerbated his depression. Clearly, he had psychological issues to take his own life. But I think that it was augmented by the fact that his 
wild success uh, turned his practice into something beyond what he initially um, conceived it as, which he had to have these employees, he had to create work on a basis that had nothing to do with inspiration, but had to do with creating fodder for this commercial enterprise. And I think that may very well have contributed to doing him in because the success was just not what he bargained for and not all that it was really measured up to be. I heard a story that his Irish Catholic working class parents didn't understand what an artist did. So instead he told them that he was a comedian for years. <laughs> I like that. I kind of think I'm a comedian to a certain extent. Yeah, I get that. So do you think this time in pandemic and how auction houses have been closed down and galleries have been closed down, and do you think this time will have the same effect on the art world or a bigger effect on the art world than Damien Hirst's beautiful Inside My Head auction? I mean, did that affect anything? That was just really more of the same. I mean, there's a long history from Hogarth of artists auctioning their own material and Manet creating his own structure from money he borrowed from his mother to exhibit his own work. So I don't think Damien's uh, auction made the slightest impact on anything other than making him filthy rich. It was a um, quote from him, by the way. From who? From Damien himself. Surprise, surprise. I mean, look, you don't get to be Damien Hurst without being brilliant and creating some of the greatest work I've seen in decades. However, like once you get to a certain saturation point, it becomes he's become a farce. And on his Instagram account, he depicts himself like covered. He has paint behind his fucking ears. Like, I get it that he's a painter now and he's showing us himself alone in a studio flicking paint on a canvas. So it looks like a tree. I'm sure when the cameras turn off, there's 25 other people cleaning up his mess on the canvas. But I mean, that doesn't really interest me. I'm interested in his early vitrines and the first body of spot paintings he did. And that's it, really. The rest is like a, it becomes like a joke on a comedy skit show from central casting comes this guy who's selling his paint splattered shirts and pants. Really, the main reason is to prove to everyone that he's actually in art, making art himself, which is just kind of, if you look at someone who's really actually in the studio toiling away and maybe they have little dabs and dashes of paint on their apron, but not much more. But forget that. That's a side issue. Back to this I mean, aside from the death and the suffering of so many different people, which has just been unprecedented in my lifetime and many other people's, I think that from hindsight, this period of reflection and take, I mean, I'm here in the UK, it was three, literally three months to the day, more or less, from when I last traveled before I came here. And that was coming back from Los Angeles during freeze when I curated a project in another small fair called Felix. And it was three months, probably the longest stint of time uh, during which I, I, I haven't traveled in probably 25 years. And I must say, like, it was probably the greatest three months of my professional life because I was teaching this class and I kept very, very busy in terms of preparing for the lecture, which having kids sit there for six hours is no easy task. Harder for them, I imagine, than for me. But just having the time to think and really, I mean, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a bunch of junk in my house, a bunch of art. And every day I rub my nose against a drawing or a small painting in my house in New York. And it really was a time for great, deep reflection 
and to really think about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and how we're going to do it going forward. Because clearly the effects of this pandemic are going to be felt for some time to come. It's going to change the way we think about traveling worldwide, getting on planes. Uh, it'll change the kind of proliferation of art fairs. I mean, the thing was, like, I, I didn't put a watch on for three months. And before that, I was always rushing and late, but I can't even tell you where I was going. I was going nowhere, but I was always late. And that's really the, the situation that so many of us were in. We're so busy racing, racing, racing for some indefinite, indeterminate place and time. So just the thought of not wearing a watch, sitting and thinking and just being considerate, spending time with my family, it was probably, like I said, it, it, and I just never stopped writing or making art and, and interacting with people on social media. And to me, that's, I mean, people laugh probably about how much time I am want to spend on Instagram and the like. But I feel like Instagram is the greatest hierarchy buster in the history of time. And for me, it's the closest thing I have to a community and I've met people, I forged relationships with people, oddly enough, improbably enough, sitting in the little room in my house. And it was a great time. And I think that, you know, it's a big slap in the face to this plethora of art fairs and auctions and, 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 and the like, because people are just going to have to really slow down. And that's a good thing. I couldn't agree more. As long as everyone is well financially mentally and physically it is a good thing it is a readjustment uh, by the way jake chapman sends you a big kiss and tells you he misses you <laughs> he's very sweet okay two more dealers that i want to talk to you about how you think things will go forward for them differently or the same two people who are very different from each other and always cited as examples of different ways of running an art gallery uh, first one is Stefan Simkowitz of Nicotine Gallery. Stefan Simkowitz. Yeah. I mean, I look, I don't begrudge anybody. I just don't care about anyone who gets involved in the art world. I don't care if you're a speculator. I don't care if you're a hedge fund guy. I don't care if you're hanging a $6 million bag of money on your wall to impress your friends. I just don't care to each their own. And I make a lot of comments. I could be very critical. I'm not a mean person. I'm a very passionate person. I'm self-critical. I'm sensitive. People would be shocked to know I'm actually nice and have a big heart and just deeply, 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 deeply care about everything art. So when I express my opinions or my judgments, I just want people to know that I'm as harsh on myself and as judgmental as I am on any on anybody else. I think you're harder so, on yourself. Oh, well, you're very kind. So like, I mean, I have opinions about all of these people, but again, like I would never say Simkowitz shouldn't be doing what he's doing. I don't give, I don't care. I don't give a rat's ass what he does or how he does it. However, I don't rate him as someone who's like, he, you know, he acts like he's this, this kind of radical, um, you know, in a certain sense in the nature of how he buys and sells art. But Charles Saatchi was wildly more radical than Simkowitz ever was. And like Simkowitz claims that he's trying to undermine the dealers and change the way this hierarchical system works. That's just a load of crap. 
I mean, it's completely untrue. Then you see him in the front row of the auction schmoozing with like the biggest art dealing family, the Named family. So really he's not, he criticizes Gavin Brown and all of these other dealers for being snotty or being um, exclusionary. But what he does is, is not different and even worse, he's not supporting and nurturing the careers of artists. He's fucking them, like not fucking them, excuse me, but like, you know, he'll buy a hundred pieces for $20 and then he'll flog them two weeks later for five times the price. Or in one famous case, he bought a gigantic bolt of material, a bolt of fabric on a roll and then cut it into like um, 500 pieces and then got into a lawsuit with the artist who is um, from Ghana. So I just think like really he's doing nothing. He's doing no – I mean again – I don't begrudge him what he does and why he does it. He should do whatever the hell he wants and he shouldn't care about me whatsoever, which. No, I but this ties into something. It ties into the fact that we're in a pandemic now and will people who have come to the art world for the love of money be here on the other side of it? I know Gavin Brown will be here. Yeah, be, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know what, what you say is a great point because I'm not so damn sure because someone like Gavin Brown, who I've had a checkered past with, we're like frenemies and we, Basically, we're at loggerheads for a good two decades until we had lunch last summer. But I think someone like Gab, I mean, I think Gavin is brilliant and he's done such, he's an artist, he's a dealer, he's done extraordinary things, but he was a little bit um, hubristic. He had some arrogance and I guess maybe it was like a British thing in, in New, a British person in New York. And, but He's suffering because he moved his gallery to Harlem with this kind of notion that people would follow him anywhere. And he made a great mistake in not being able to put the money together to own his space. So he's renting this gigantic space that he renovated in Harlem. And he, um, Simkowitz will live forever like a cockroach because he's got family money and he's made his own money. And he's a, he's, I mean, I think the greatest people on the dealing side of art are never going to, are always going to be struggling. And I mean, some may have made, you make money not selling art, you make money keeping art and collecting art. So I think someone like Simkowitz would live through five nuclear conflagrations because he has money behind him and he'll always be able to continue giving it to artists and then getting art from them at depressed prices to resell. But someone like Gavin uh, is teetering because He's a great impresario, but he should have never moved so far away from the rest of the art world in New York. And he lost a lot of his um, highest selling artists like Avery Singer and Chris Ophelia and uh, Peter Doig and Urs Fisher and Elizabeth Payton. I mean, you look, there's got to be a reason why. And in a way, I guess he didn't grow in the way that those artists would commit to continuing to show with him. So I think what we really have to be concerned about are the people in at the level of Gavin Brown and below in terms of scale. How are these people going to survive? All these billionaires and all these speculators, I call them, which is like, I mean, there's very, very, very few collectors that exist in the world anymore. Any collector that you find that's never sold a piece of art, I say they should be in a vitrine in the Natural History Museum because they're so rare. So... Simkowitz is just doing what Charles was buying art with partners and buying art en masse from studios and reselling it at a later date. He was doing that in the 70s. I mean, it's a shame he kind of lost his ambition or, you know, his determination to continue. But 
he did some extraordinary things in his Boundary Road space and by fostering the careers of emerging artists. And in a sense, I just don't get that feeling that Simkowitz is contributing towards the pushing along of the careers of the artists he's involved with. Tell me five artists to watch. On the other side of the pandemic, who am I looking at? Well, I I don't play those games. I mean, yes, I'm not do. a soothsayer. Come on. Come on I'm game. not a soothsayer. I don't, I mean, I'm who just, are you looking there's at? so many. Who's Penny looking at? Who are you looking at? Who are you looking at? Well, I mean, I'm not like, first of all, I'm broke. <laughs> I mean, I am broke. So whatever I'm looking at is going to be for like $5,000. I'm still trying to pay off the art that I bought before this happened. Um, so, I mean, there's a young painter, um, Ibeko Muslimova, who I really, really like. She shows at Magenta Plains. Uh, there's a young painter called Trey Ab Abdullah, who I like. Cheyenne Julian is a young painter that I like. I mean, there's really, there's so many. What there's books really... are you reading, Kenny? <laughs> I just read, um, I just read this crazy book called The Billion Dollar Whale. There's also an artist, Ellen Birkenbelt, uh, Ellen Birkenblit, sorry, who's probably in her 50s, late 50s. But I mean, there's so many incredible artists that are in their 50s, 60s, that I would even call emerging artists because their careers or their markets haven't emerged, but they're still incredible artists. So, I Especially mean, I Especially for women who are having children in the days that you lose your emerging yeah, status. Well, I mean, God. women. Well said, Ken. Yeah. Yeah. So there are artists like that that I'm, that I mean, I don't know. There's just so many. I traded a sweater that I had uh, uh, for a piece by, um, what's, an artist who's just at Whitechapel now. I'm having a jet lag moment. Okay. Um, who I love. <laughs> um, are they oh, at Whitechapel um, right Nicole, now? Nicole Eisenman had this great, insane triptych that was um, recently at Whitechapel, and I couldn't afford a painting right now. But I literally traded a sweater that she coveted some for some reason. Uh, that was so I traded for a drawing she made, which was a political piece about uh, calling for a rent strike in New York for the people that can't afford to pay their rent. And I was lucky enough to get that piece. Amazing. So, I mean, and I recently like I've been trading with people to get stuff. I bought a drawing of one of my students called Tiffany um, Alsenko, Alfonso. Wait, hang on. I'm so like I said, I'm so bad with names, but from one of my students at SVA. Tiffany Alfonseca. So yeah, I'm still trying to participate. And I love collecting art from artists that are making art now. I never say young artists because that's asinine. Because like I said, there's so many amazing artists that are well into their years that are um, at these accessible prices. So I've been trading stuff to get stuff, bartering and buying draw drawings to me are the most accessible, best way to collect art. Uh, without a lot of money, because first of all, I just love the immediacy of a hand to a piece of paper, and they're cheap. What's going to happen with auction houses? Do we really care? I mean, I think auction houses will always survive because they're big institutions and people always have to sell art. And they'll always, I mean, internet online auctions have 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 astronomically uh, increased 
They've had the highest prices ever gleaned for pieces on in, on online auctions. The biggest online sales have occurred to date. And at the end of June, they're trying a new paradigm, which is like Ali Barker, the Sotheby's uh, auctioneer, standing in front of a bank of screens conducting auctions between Hong Kong, London, Paris, and New York. So, I mean, they always say that death, debt, and uh, divorce will always bring art for sale. And they'll always, I mean, auctions are as primitive as when primal, as when art first came off the wall of caves, it's been coveted, bought, and sold. And like wampum, before there was currency, things were traded. And I mean, now that we're in, I mean, America seems to be not even on the brink of a civil war, but in the midst of a civil war with a president that not only condones violence, he espouses it on a daily basis in the most shockingly moronic, disturbing way on his Twitter account of all places. So things may very well revert to this kind of like online auction slash bartering economy and I don't know if that's such a bad thing. So I think the auctions will survive. Sooner or later, people are going to be allowed in a room together, whether they have to sit far a few seats away from each other. The rooms get bigger. Half more of it is online. Eventually, people will the vaccine will be created and we'll get past this. So nothing will change auctions. Nothing will change galleries. We're just going through a hiccup. Art and the dis- commercial dissemination of art is a very forceful stream and anything that gets in the way is a stone that pops up and the art world will swim around it. You didn't ask me about Inigo Philbrick. I'm got it right now. Inigo Philbrick was a successful gallery owner. He uh, bought and sold millions of work and his friend and partner, Kenny Schachter. Just I was not him. his partner. That's first of all, wait, stop right there because the times, uh, the UK times reprinted a, a, an article I wrote uh, for New York Magazine that came out in March. And they came up with the title that I was certainly, Jay Joplin was his partner of White Cube. They That's had right. a number of they had a number of companies together. I only ever bought and sold art with him because I was able to make money more easily than I ever did. And the saying, which I have kind of coined, which is anything too good to be true is too good to be true. And working with Inigo was just that. So we, I literally just bought some art and resold it through him in a, in a legitimate fashion from 2012 to 2015 before he just threw again arrogance. And I'm very deferential and self-deprecating for good reason, because I'm not the brightest bowl, but I'm very passionate and I work hard. But when you begin to believe like you're somehow better than people or, ha- you know, nothing good will ever come from it. It's much better to be, you know, on the verge of self-hating than it is to be too too self-loving. And Inigo became just a basic criminal, a forger and a thief. But I was never his partner. I was just duped into being robbed of a tremendous amount of money from him that really would have helped me at a time like this. And I'm not the only one. So what he was doing is he was leveraging work that he didn't actually have yet. And, 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 and some people say... He just got caught in a bad deal and had to free No, that's what he says. No, no, no. What he was doing was he would take art that he didn't even own, use it for collateral to get loans. Then he would do the same thing all over again with the same art that he didn't own. 
Then he forged documents to some of the uh, lending companies. He forged documents to some of his partners. He would take people stationary and recreate it. I even heard, I mean, he even told me of a case where he was negotiating to buy a damaged painting. And then he had his studio, his gallery assistants recreate the painting so he could resell it at a higher price. So, I mean, it's a shit. It, it was basically the most basic form of greed in the end where, and it wasn't just his greed. The reason that he was, I'm not sure he would be able to exist again in the art world after the pandemic. They're saying he's after, a wake-up call. They're saying he's the wake-up call. Yeah. So, I mean, he was very much a kind of perfect emblem of where the art world was at that time because, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there were barely any institutions that would lend money on art. With all of these, the advent of all of these headlines of like people, you know, Leonardo da Vinci selling for 450 million, everybody and their grandmother, if they weren't becoming artists, they were becoming either dealers or art lenders or curators or art advisors, even more so. So I think that he was very, I mean, part, it's not, you can't condone what he did because of, you know, the mass kind of um, avariciousness of the people around him. But he was very much a reflection of where the art world was uh, last year, not so long ago, like six, eight months ago, 10 months ago, where, you know, I said, I made an art piece, a video of like Sotheby's Easy Credit Pharmaceutical Pills where, I mean, people were just throwing money into the art world with the hope of getting a great deal more back in a very short period of time by doing very little. That's really what it boils down to. And that's a formula for destruction because really, like I said before, you know, nothing's, if anything's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. And there's no shortcut. Art, people don't understand. Like I learned something about art each and every single day that I wake up and read various websites and read about art and visit artists studios and art is a lifelong we can end on this because I'm going to take up your next interview art is a slow burning lifelong organic process of accruing knowledge and information visually and intellectually and nothing will ever substitute a screen or a phone will never substitute for looking at a piece of art and no one could just chuck money at some speculator like Simkowitz or Inigo and think they're going to walk away. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to make a, a, a fortune by speculating without a depth of knowledge and experience. It's just impossible. And it's not going to happen. It hasn't happened in the past, only short term, like gambling, and it won't happen in the future. And, you know, now Inigo is on the run, having stolen anywhere between 50 and 100 million dollars. And... I mean, part of the reason he was able to was because of not only his greed and arrogance, but because of the greed and arrogance of the people he dealt with. And I have to say, like, I'm complicit. I can't say that my hands were entirely clean because because I have such a difficult time making money. I put most of my energy to the dismay of my family into teaching and making art and curating. So, you know, all of us got taken and it's a wake up call and it's a morality lesson for a lot of people, including myself. Kenny, Kenny Schachter, thank you. Please stay in touch. You're welcome anytime. I'll clear whatever time there is. Always love your opinions and your passion. Uh, hope you're well and love from the whole art world. We miss you in London. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. 
Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.